This is a show where we explore personal and professional developments, business, all from a coach's point of view. But on our series, The Reluctant Entrepreneur is where myself and Diana Ideas, Master Certified Coach, have been talking about our flavor of entrepreneurship, of business, called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. And today with us, we have a special guest in the virtual studio, one of Hawthorne Union's latest members to join, Drew Long. Hello. Good morning. Yes. Thanks for having me. It is very good to have you. And we're moving along. So we've talked about plenty of things um, on our Reluctant Entrepreneur journey. But I'm interested to kind of hear, why don't you know, for those that haven't seen your bio on the website, HawthorneUnion.com. Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about you and how you got wrapped up with the Rapscallion crew like the union? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, I will say I have known Diana for years. We are former colleagues, um, go way back. My career is sort of interesting. I started in coaching. That was my first ever job out of college was a professional coaching uh, gig. I actually started on my own consulting. So like my first experience ever in the working world was just coaching people for money without any without any company or, or corporate structure around me. I was just sort of guided and mentored into this path uh, by, a, by a mentor I had. And what I was doing was I was coaching individuals with traumatic brain injury on activities of daily living and how to like get back to, you know, sort of some semblance of reality. So that was, you know, sort of the deep end of the coaching pool. And then that actually that job allowed me or that consulting work allowed me to get hired by Inside Track, which was, you know, educational coaching. And I, you know, had my first sort of career run there. Uh, have since transitioned. I uh, spent some time in, you know, clean tech, in sales, in fintech, uh, and and have kind of rounded out my career. You know, working for a large publicly traded company. You know, that at its peak was you know valuation north of four billion. So have had the small company experience. You know, the private company pre IPO, and then the large company experience. And now I'm mostly consult small companies that are like Series A or Series B on marketing and sales. So getting their user acquisition funnels dialed in and improving revenue, monthly recurring revenue, annual recurring revenue, uh, using all kinds of sales and marketing and and really coaching and human behavior change uh, influences. I've kind of pulled together everything from my career that really started with, you know, coaching and helping people and, you know, now apply that to consumer facing startups. So that's, that's kind of the short story. And then in, I think we determined it was 2019. Uh, in 2019, when I was in the thick of, oh my God, I didn't sign up for this. In the thick of my reluctance, uh, Drew's LinkedIn profile said that he would offer pro bono consulting. <laughs> and I reached out to him and I was like, did you mean it? <laughs> really? Do you? So um, I'm very excited to have Drew here because also he has been uh, a coach for me and a primary support in my reluctant entrepreneur journey. So I'm so thankful for that. And, and that, that makes it more personal as well. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been, it's been such a journey supporting you and helping and doing whatever I can. You know, I think um, it's always helpful to have an outside perspective, even though our experiences are very different and your, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily feel, I don't necessarily always feel like my expertise is in your area. I still understand the power of coaching and how like it can be helpful just to have a sounding board and and you know, you, you, we talk, and when you give me your perspective uh, on what I'm doing, it's super helpful as well. Because you know, 
We can't see when we're in the car trying to back into the space. We, we really can't see as well as someone standing outside the car. Yeah. So you've come full circle and here we are today talking about entrepreneurship. How do you feel about that? Entrepreneurship is interesting. So I, don't cons- I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily consider myself an entrepreneur. I consider myself, I think of myself more as a consultant, as a coach consultant. To me, an entrepreneur is someone who, I mean, in the strictest definition, it's someone who's started like multiple businesses in a field. Like I think of, you know, if someone who has opened a series of restaurants, that's like an entrepreneur to me is like they keep opening up, up new restaurant brands and new restaurant concepts. I worked for a guy way back in my 20s who just kept opening up different, um, like basically restaurants and hospitality venues in, in, in my city where I lived under one big, like sort of ages corporation. But he was just really good at, at dialing in, you know, the restaurant concept and restaurants are very hard. They're, you know, small profit margins, but he had figured out his, he'd figured out his process that worked at least in that, in that area. Um, or someone like Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk has started a number of businesses across different industries. That's of course, very rare. Like most entrepreneurs can't hit across, you know, automotive and space and finance and all the things he's done. But and that's not to take away from anyone, you know, everyone has their own definition. But I, when I think of myself, I just think of like, I'm a guy who help peeps, helps people on an individual level, usually one-on-one or in small groups and provides value. And, and that's not even, I don't even necessarily feel like I've graduated to being a business person because a business person like creates systems and then the business makes money while they sleep. And, and I, I'm still, you know, like just helping people during the day when I'm awake. <laughs> So I don't know if that's a helpful perspective. I think it is. Well, it's funny to me, though, how we see ourselves versus how other people see us. Because part of the reason that I reached out to Drew is I was like, well, I need someone who's not in the business already. And I need someone who knows more about business than I do. (laughs) Right. So that may not be how you see yourself. But that was part of my interest. And then knowing your background in sales. And, you know, we, we had the shared foundation of... Um, the, the interesting thing with coaching versus consulting is how much are we partnering with the person to find their own path versus consulting and making recommendations. Um, so for me, the fact that you had a background in coaching, but then also were comfortable in consulting was what really made it a match. So it's just kind of funny because it's, it's how we, that's part of why we talk about reluctant entrepreneur. I didn't see myself as an entrepreneur. It was a, you know, as you know, it was a long journey. Um, so it, it just kind of, it's interesting to hear how you talk about yourself as well. Yeah. And a lot of people probably don't know the difference between coaching and consulting. It all just gets jumbled into one big... I mean, they both start with the letter C, right? There you go. And they're all kind of like in this jumbled mess of of people that support other people or just take money and tell people what to do or something like that. So how would you also start to delineate these two disciplines as well? Yeah. So the way I would describe it to someone is a consultant is someone you go to when you need an expert opinion. And they're going to tell you what to do in a very narrow field because they've already done it. And they know what's successful, right? They know the steps to success. Like with the earlier example, if I want to start a restaurant, I need to go to a consultant who started you know, seven to 10 restaurants and they're all profitable, right? Like that's the guy I want to talk to or the girl I want to talk to. Um, and that's a skill set like a lot of restaurateurs actually might not have the skill set of consulting. They might not want to talk to other humans about starting restaurants. So there's there has to be a Venn diagram overlap of has the skill and is able to talk about the skill in a way that I will understand or that other people can pick up. And then coaching is, you know, the definition of that I would I would give to people as a coach is someone who's just going to listen, ask you good questions and 
help you reveal your own thinking and help you sort of process your experience and your your situation out loud um, and, and ask you questions that maybe you haven't considered and go deeper on your thinking. And in that way, you'll be guided to better solutions. I mean, one of the things I think that all the, everyone on this call can agree is, is that people are creative, resourceful, and whole. And everyone already has enough motivation. And everyone has... like People do know, deep down, I think, the answers to their problems and what they need to do next to get ahead in life. But the problem is, often we just don't like pay attention to our intuition, or we don't listen to ourselves, or we don't talk about our situations out loud, or we just go in these ego spirals of like, oh, it's so difficult, and I can't do it, and I have doubts about myself, and I'm you know, self-esteem issues or whatever it may be. And so having that third party or that second party, that, that external set of ears and, and, and eyes and voice to bounce off of is, is profoundly helpful. I mean, I've even sometimes, I think I've had people tell me in a coaching capacity, um, <clears throat> if all you did was just listen to me for an hour, it would be worth the money. Like just the fact that you can be listening and and shut up and like not interrupt me and not tell me what to do for an hour is is a huge value. And I've even gotten a lot of distance in my life at times when I didn't have anyone around me and I was, you know, for whatever reason in a more isolated place of just like talking out loud into a voice recorder for 20 or 20 minutes. Like that's often very helpful as well. Yeah, and and some of some of your some of your definition of consultant, I hear mentoring in as well. Like, because to me, a mentor has done it. I think we find in sometimes consulting field, I'll just say for kind of Hawthorne Union, consulting and management. Yes, I have a lot of management experience and leadership experience. And I talk to leaders all day, but I haven't necessarily managed in their industry. So um, that's not necessarily a correct version of the definition. But I do think there's, there's these different roles from a Venn diagram perspective that are that are layering on each other. Um, and, and following up, like it, it, it is sometimes, sometimes people just want to be heard. And the truth of the matter is, is it's funny. Someone will pay you to tell them what to do and then they won't do it. <laughs> so yes. it's like, you might as well pay me to not tell you what to do. And then we'll give that a try. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a very common thing. I mean, humans have a really difficult time changing behavior or doing things differently. And so there are a lot, I've seen so many examples at a micro level and at a macro level, big, huge companies, right? Hiring McKinsey or hiring these huge, expensive, you know, consultants. And oftentimes they pay for it and they look at the recommendations and they're like, nah, you know, or even working one-on-one with people. I have, I have, I have had paid clients where I tell them exactly what to do. You know, here's step one through step 50, literally just follow these 47 steps and you'll have success. And they're like, nah, you know, that's not, that's not really what I want to do. So I'm not going to do that. I'm like, all right. You know, you're you have free will, you have full autonomy. So what does that tell us about human behavior? If you're like, here are the 47 steps to success. Yeah, I go. Nah. Well, I think <laughs> first and foremost, it's important that we all recognize and and ground ourselves on the reality that no one likes being told what to do. No one. And in fact, they've done studies where when you tell people what to do, it actually makes them less likely to do that exact thing you said. <laughs> What's more effective in behavior change and influence and persuasion is actually asking people what they should do, asking them what they think they should do and asking them for their thoughts, which I think is a huge part of the power of coaching because coaching is all about, you know, as I understand it, curious questions and engaging their best thinking through appreciative inquiry and, you know, Socratic inquiry and getting people thinking because, and you, you have this experience, this is where there's overlap with sales. In sales, 
you're a terrible salesperson if you're like, hey, you know what? You should buy this. This is a really good deal for you. It's going to save you money. It's going to be great. You should buy this. You really should buy this right now. I'll give you a discount. You want to buy it? You want to buy it? Let's buy it right now. That is what pe- turns people off about salespeople. And that's why they, that's like, that's why salespeople have a bad rap because most salespeople think that they should tell and sell, and telling is selling. But really successful salespeople don't do that. Really successful people say, look, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Why, why do you think you should buy this product? Why would you buy this product? How would you justify you know, this expense for yourself? And they ask that question and then the other person talks about why they would buy the product and they end up talking themselves into buying it. Or they end up articulating the reasons that they really want to do buy the product. Everyone hates being sold, but everyone loves buying things. I mean, that's the reason online shopping is so amazing. We all love buying things. We love spending money. We love making money. We love spending money. We love shopping and buying things, but we hate being sold. So there's a huge amount of overlap between the persuasive language that gets people to change their behavior and the persuasive language that causes people to buy products. And it really all comes back to giving people their autonomy and their free will and reminding them of their autonomy and their free will. And we're saying this just days before Amazon Prime Day, which is a made-up holiday just to buy a bunch of crap that (laughs) we never needed to begin with. But it's 46% off. So... Um, so, so Drew, you bring up a lot of great examples and then relating it back to sales, but we've talked about behavior change. So when it comes to an organization or a business really trying to change behavior, have you seen businesses successfully implement behavior change yes. that you're aware of? Yes, absolutely. Um, but more often than not, unsuccessfully. So... <laughs> The instances of successful behavior change are way fewer than the instances of unsuccessful behavior change for, for, for the reasons I was talking about, because most people don't understand how to actually implement successful behavior change. Um, and so, yeah, the, the successful instances I can think of had way more to do with generating buy-in or like getting buy-in through asking questions, through engaging the uh, will of the frontline employees, for example, through asking them, like, how can we do this? Like, I'll, I can just share one brief example. I was part of an organization once and there had there was a initiative to effectively double the amount of output of the frontline employees. And I took my team into a room on a different floor and I bought them pizza and I said, "Look, I know you guys are like very frustrated with this because basically management is asking you to work twice as hard for the same pay. Like I understand that, but let me ask you a question. How can we achieve this change so that it makes your job better and so that you end up with a with a job you like better?" that you're excited to come to work to, to every day and you're happier and you're doing this additional work. Like, how, how can we make this better for you? And just asking that creative question, I think, engaged their wheels and engaged them thinking on a different level of like, oh, this is, a, this is a time, a period of seismic change in the organization, which is very common now. I mean, the amount of seismic change we've had in corporate culture over the last two or three years has been, you know, greater than it probably any time during my lifetime, right? <laughs> And seismic change is a huge... I've always seen it as a huge opportunity. When things are changing at a massive rate and scale, it's an opportunity to rewrite the entire rule book. Like there's a saying in politics, right? Never waste a good crisis. And I I apply that to the corporate world. Like when there's a crisis, that's an opportunity and you get to rewrite the rule book. So I, I told my... I told people, you know, let's rewrite the rule book on your entire job. And that's what, you know, led to success of them thinking creatively, engaging with the work in a different way, bringing a different energy to the work, and ultimately getting you know the productivity increases and more 
and morale increases and more at the same time. I'm curious, Drew, as you talk about opportunity, how you see that translating on an entrepreneur perspective, either with entrepreneurs you work with, you know, myself included, or on your own journey. Hmm. Are you asking, do you mean the, what are the opportunities of being an entrepreneur or? However you want to take it. Cause I, cause I am curious, you know, you have such, you have such knowledge and context working in companies, but I also know that for myself, who you support as an entrepreneur and for your own, what you don't identify as entrepreneurial pursuits, but your own kind of consulting pursuits. I'm curious as we look at kind of opportunities. You know, I think, I think people do better usually within constraints. And part of the challenge, I think, with consultants or co- coaching, you know, being your own boss um, is is a terrible freedom. There's a terrible freedom of being your own boss. Uh, most people I've noticed when they go into entrepreneurship or solopreneurship um, or being their own boss, they are a terrible boss, myself included, right? Like, I don't give myself a lot of free time or like time off. I don't give myself, you know, a lot of vacation days per the year. I don't give myself a lot of sick days, right? So I think when people go into working for themselves, they first should really ask themselves, you know, using this inquiry process, okay, what kind of boss am I going to be to myself? And would that even be a boss I would want to work for? Maybe I need to look at my own habits and patterns first to establish, you know, some professional conduct with me as the boss and the employee. And then I think part of the terrible freedom, and I think like, you know, this, we've, we've spoken about this, Diana, is when you can do anything in your business, it's hard to know what to do. And what to do next and what's most important because there's no right answer. And there's no, there's no corporate playbook. There's no management layer above you telling you, prioritize this, deprioritize that, double your productivity, get rid of all this other work, right? There's no one you have to tell you, you have to figure out, you know, based on your values and priorities, how am I going to steer this ship? And that's, I think that's a big part of the reason why a lot of people fail at solopreneurship or entrepreneurship is because that's a level of self-guidance and self-management that's uh, terrifying in its freedom. I think people do better. Most people will do better with strong leadership from outside of themselves and with constraints they have to work in. And that's one of the beautiful things I think about crises, like the COVID thing. We all had to suddenly work from home or socially distance. That's a great constraint under which to figure out how to do business better or to do business the same uh, with a, with an additional additional constraint. And I think we've learned, like, in fact, a lot of people like working from home and they're just as productive, if not more productive. So that that. But you know, when you're on your own boss, um, the utter freedom I think I, I have seen stop a lot of people, and it's not something I've figured out entirely myself. You know, I I have struggles with that to this day. Interesting. It's kind of like the people can look at scarcity and abundance as bad and good, but it's what you some of what resonated for me based on what you said is it's almost the like darker side of abundance, like when there's so many options and you don't know what to pick. Or, yes. you know, when you have all the freedom to be your own boss, you're right. Most of us just slave drive ourselves. Right? So, yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I think that that's good. It's good context about also extremes or as you say, yeah. constraints. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you mentioned that when people are kind of becoming their boss, that most people are actually a very terrible boss. They don't manage their time. But when, you know, you know, in, in my coaching work that I've done, traditionally, people never identify themselves as the root of the problem. Well, it's the market or it's the economy or you just can't find good people these days. Yuck, yuck, yuck. And so on and so forth. So how do people take the information that you're pointing out and start actually applying it when everyone else and everything else is usually the problem? Yeah. So, I mean, I think victimhood 
is a huge problem, victimhood and accountability. And that's something that that's really where we start is like the first sale or the first persuasive job that I find I have to do with people is persuading them that they are at the cause and not at the effect, right? Or like getting rid of the victimhood. And if someone's made made that transition of, because here's the thing, if it's the market, if it's the economy, if it's the political situation, if it's anything outside of yourself, you've given up your power. You're, you're abdicating your power and choice and, and free will and autonomy to external forces. So you're now at the effect of the world, not at the cause of the outcomes you want. So the first thing is, you, if you take accountability and responsibility, the nice thing that that does for you is it does give you more power. It gives you your power back of, okay, regardless of what's happening in the economy at large, regardless of what's happening with you know COVID or lockdowns or supply chain or any of that, what am I going to do differently? Like, What do I have control over? I'm going to master what I can control, what's in my sphere of influence, what's in my sphere of control. And let me just maximize that. And that actually tends to get people, in my experience, focused on doing things that are moving them forward productively rather than worrying about things that they can't control. I mean, none of us can control the national economy. None of us can control the national, the, the global uh, you know, shipping crisis. Like None of us can control that stuff. So, you know, even if you're even the richest man on earth, right? Elon can't control the supply chain. So what what chance do the rest of us have? We just have to focus on our sphere of control, sphere of influence. Yeah, it's interesting because for the for the reluctant entrepreneur, traditionally one of the main sources of them getting into business is is passion, right? I, well, I've always wanted to open up a, a coffee shop and settle down or or a toy hobby store. And we they don't really analyze. Um, maybe the the methods behind it when things like coffee shops, like you mentioned, restaurants, those seem really, really great to outsiders, but actually very low profit margins for a lot of work, right? You're constantly having to maintain things like your uh, Yelp status and so on and so forth and reviews and doing promotions and dot, 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 dot. And so when people are using passion and they don't want to prescribe uh, things like finding what's out of the control, they traditionally uh, attribute it to to all these other statuses. So when you're bringing people in to focus on what they can control and then kind of bringing uh, business people back to reality, what do you see as maybe the first steps on the pathway back to success when they're, this is the reality in which they have to be successful? Like I was saying, so you can only get so far on passion. And that's, I think, where you have to look at the market and look at your business plan and look at the intersection of there may be things you're passionate about that the market doesn't want or need. Or there may be things that the market wants and needs that you're slightly passionate about, but that really will lead you to that you know, success, the financial success that you're looking for. And maybe it's not your full passion, but it's going to get you where you want to go. I don't, I don't really believe, like a lot of people out there, a lot of gurus and such will talk about, well, you know, Whatever your passion is, you just follow your passion and everything will be okay. And I think that's a uh, disservice to people that want to be in business for themselves because I don't think that's true. I think there has to be an intersection between your passion, what you're actually good at, and what the market desires. And maybe it's not, maybe it's not something you're super good at, but you can earn, you can learn more skills to get better at it. Maybe it's not what you're super passionate about, but you have enough passion to sustain. You know, I think people just have to work more on finding that intersection and being willing to like let go of some of your dreams. Like the market is not going to sustain everyone's dreams. I think we have to be practical and pragmatic about that. It might sustain, sustain part of your dreams or 
something you can be happy enough doing, but I don't I don't necessarily believe that 100% of everybody is going to be able to have all of their dreams come true through, you know, through business. We just have such a different perspective. You know, it's, I don't disagree with you. It's just, it's, it's, it's really, and one of the value, a huge part of the value of having your insight in the business is the way that we see things differently. So I just, I, I offer that from a diversity perspective. Um, you know, I, I don't disagree with anything Drew is saying, but I'm much more like, Hey, you know, where's your passion? Where's that fit? Where does it fit in the market? We're not, we're not on different pages. It's just a very different approach. Um, but also that's, that's part of why from, you know, whether it's from a diversity perspective or from a mentoring or consulting or coaching perspective, it's really valuable to, to see, to see people who see things differently and, and can really kind of put it, put it in, you know, terms like that. That's, those are not, I don't know that I would have said that to an entrepreneur, but I do also think what you said needs to be said. So that's just something I appreciate is the different perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would agree, which is that you can't let the pendulum swing too far in one direction or the other. Because we there are many, many cases of established businesses that have been doing it for years and years. And, and obviously, any sort of love for what they do is, is long gone. And that comes through and how they operate. Or that people go, I, I open this place on a hope and a prayer. and that's what it's keeping it together, including duct tape, right? As well. So there, there is probably a balance between these two things. In a lot of the modern documentation or modern books that I've read, I think one of them is, is Marcus Buckingham. He talks about instead of finding love in everything you do, can you find something you love like in once a day, like in a little bit, not in everything you do, but just in some of the things that you do, and maybe that's enough to sustain you to keep going. Yeah. And look, like, so this brings me to something I talked about a lot when I was in corporate, which is the grind. And there's grind in every job I've been in. And by grind, I just mean parts of the job that you don't really enjoy and things you don't love to do, but you have to do. And like, it doesn't matter whether you're working for someone else, there's grind. Whether you're working for yourself, there's going to be grind in that too. So a lot of people that I, you know, when you're in the corporate environment, a lot of people I talk to said like, oh, I wish I could work for myself because this grind is so difficult. But I had to tell them like, look, I've worked for myself. There's grind there too. So you can learn to love the grind and and find happiness in it, or you can resist the grind and then you'll have a lot more suffering regardless of what you're doing. I think that's one of the hardest things about it too, at least for, you know, when you put the reluctant and reluctant entrepreneur, (laughs) because some of that grind, I was like, I didn't sign up for this. This isn't what I wanted. Um, and you know, I feel like when you're, when you're in a grind, but you get a paycheck and you get a paycheck for just showing up on those certain days, um, you know, it's part of it and it's part of it and you accept it. But, you know, I think one of the challenging things about entrepreneur life is that you can do the best work of your life and you won't necessarily see that pay or you don't get that pay, or it's not, it may not be a match for the amount of work that you've put in. Um, so, you know, and then, you know, trying to figure out, okay, how do you make money while you're asleep? And like, what do you have to do in order to make money while you sleep? And, you know, it's interesting, even as Hawthorne Union grows, there's a lot more admin, legal contracts. What is it, you know, especially working with bigger companies, working with global companies, um, that's, that's not necessarily grind, but it's logistics and logistics tends to grind on me. (laughs) So, but it's not necessarily something I can outsource at this point. 
um, because some of those things we've just we've never done before. We don't have answers to those questions. So um, I think it's as Thomas DeLauer says, choose your hard, right? Like there's going to be hard no matter where you go or what you do. You it's just about choosing it. And then back to Drew, what you talked about with kind of sphere of influence and control. You know, there's there's going to be opportunity and adversity everywhere. It's a matter of both perspective and then also what we choose to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've debunked the idea, right? Of find something you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. I mean, it's just, it's not consistent with reality. So as we start kind of trying to examine behavior change and lifting the, maybe the glorious uh, grass is greener on the other side, like, oh, I wouldn't have to work hard. wouldn't have to do this grind if just I got into business for myself. And we start to open the reality. Is it all really doom and gloom? I think absolutely not. I think it's you know incredibly rewarding, incredibly fulfilling. Um, it's a magical feeling to be able to create a product or service really from thin air, to find something that helps the market that people want, that people crave and desire and will pay you money for. I think it's absolutely one of the most uh, fulfilling things you can do if you have sort of the knack or the aptitude or, or the desire, the passion for it. Uh, and I think it's also one of the most powerful self-development programs you can embark on in a way, you know, because it's going to force you to change and grow and develop as a person. Um, it's going to force you to think about other people in a different way, to think from the perspective of your customer, to think about what people really want and need, to think about how to serve others at a high level, to, to really serve and be there for people. I mean, the market is unforgiving. If you aren't serving and, and helping people at a very high level that's significantly better than the competitors, it doesn't matter, right? You don't have to be... The goal should not be to try to be just a tiny bit better than other people. The goal should try to be to be like 10x better than everyone around you. Not that it's all about competition and you should be constantly comparing and freaking yourself out. Because I know that's also really gets people, some people off track. But to really try to produce value in the market from 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 nothing or, or from your own skill and expertise and experience is, is wonderful. I just think people shouldn't get the impression that it's easy, fun, you know, sunshine and rainbows, because it's definitely not. It's I think harder than most people think it'll be, uh, harder than most people expect it'll be, and harder than most people talk about it being. Even even you know very successful entrepreneurs. And the other thing that I think is daunting is a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs or you know influencers, people that speak about business, speak about speak about entrepreneurship or solopreneurship. Once you get to a certain level, I think you start being very distanced from how hard it is at the beginning. So, you know, survivorship bias, first of all, you know, the people that everyone wants to listen to and follow on social media, they all made it. You know, we the people with millions of followers aren't the people that crashed and burned. <laughs> it's the people that made it. And then at a certain level of success, like y- you're going to forget how hard it was at the start. You're not that close to that anymore, you know? And and it's and your problems change so rapidly, and I think the problems get so different so rapidly as you have success that it's like you don't have mental space to remember the, the struggle and the grind at the beginning. So I think that is those are just a couple issues of you know when people are learning and that's why I say it's probably harder than most people expect or are told at the beginning, but I do think I mean hard things are rewarded. Like the harder it is, the bigger the reward at the end. So I don't think people should not do it. I think people should absolutely do it. Uh but I I do think people should go in with clear eyes and realize this this might be pretty challenging. Yeah. I mean I try not to curse on Jason's show, but it's like, get ready to get handed your ass. <laughs> like, here it comes. And, and, you know, to face, to face your stuff and, and face it being 
more difficult. And, you know, it, it is, I think that your perspective, Drew, is also why we're doing the reluctant entrepreneur now, because my reluctance is fading. <laughs> and I also want to capture that this was one of the most, if not the most difficult chapters of my life. So anything else do we want to kind of talk about before we start to wrap up for today? Well, I just want to, you know, on, on that point, Diana, of your reluctance in this whole, this whole situation, you have such an interesting and unique story that I think a lot of people can learn from because most people I know wanted this. They really want to be an entrepreneur, right? They want to be successful and have a, have a small business. And that wasn't your story. Like you didn't want this. You had to be kind of convinced that it, it was your path. And that's such a unique story and, and such a different story. Um, and I think people can learn a lot from that, from, from that experience of the reverse. It's so rare. Like uh, you're the only person I've met that has been this reluctant and ha- sort of been like guided and pushed into this path. Um, so I, I just think that's valuable. Well, thank you. <laughs> and, and um, you know, I needed a lot of support. And so I'm thankful. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for Jason, like folks in the union, outside of the union. So, you know, some of what we talk about as well is, you know, it's capturing that and capturing that sharing with each other, you know, having the different perspectives, I think is really important. Because um, one of the things that I've looked at is like, hey, you know, does does our reluctance serve us? Because potentially, was I more cautious? Was I more careful? Um, even though I didn't have, you know, sometimes the passion can be foolhardy. Um, and, you know, kicking and screaming, you know, doesn't, you know, it's one of the one of the teachers that I have for the Enneagram, she says that everything serves and disserves equally. So some of it's looking at the looking at the the kind of potential and also saying like, what path are you going to choose? Like you can learn from everything. We always have choices, even if we don't like the choices. Um, But from an empowerment perspective, often in coaching, if someone feels stuck or trapped or disempowered, it's looking at, okay, what choice do you have? Um, And what agency can you have? What ownership, you know, can you take? So um, I appreciate the validation and then also the support. So thank you. Of course. So documenting, capturing, eviscerating the Instagram filter of business. So this has been a fun conversation. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on. You're absolutely welcome. Thank you. So before we wrap up, Drew, where can people find out more about you? I think on the, on the Hawthorne union uh, website on the, on the, the bio, uh, I don't really have my own like social media presence. I'm, I'm pretty much strictly word of mouth. I guess people can find me on LinkedIn if they want, but I think, I think the Hawthorne union website is the best resource. Diana. Uh, same Hawthorne union, LinkedIn, and uh, I think Jason, not to speak for you, but I think we all hang out there. We, we kind of all hang out there. <laughs> yeah. So you can find me also on the halls of LinkedIn and also on the Hawthorne Union website. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We will capture a few of the things that we referenced in the show's show notes. And until next time. Thanks again. Thanks again.